So glad that you're here today. It looks like winter is finally upon us uh, this week, and so be really careful as you go out because people do not have their snow feet yet, nor their snow tires. So it's always something we have to remember, isn't it? Well, turn with me to uh, John's Gospel. And while you're turning, let me make a statement or two about this past week and the election. From what we see, it would appear that our God is not continued with His judgment upon our nation. You see, God sends judgment many times by giving leaders who are evil. And I believe wholeheartedly that America is in that place. It's possible that the house could turn. But even if it does, we have so many rhinos in Congress now that I'm sure the Biden agenda and the evil that has pervaded over the past two years will continue. So what do we do as believers We respect the authorities that God has given us, and we pray for them, but we live for Christ. We follow Christ. Christ is our King, our Savior, our Lord. And whatever the dictates of evil governments may say or bring upon us, we will follow Christ. So remember... And continue the faith. Keep the faith. For the days could get harder as we go ahead. And in that, in that note, let's read the scripture. Because what we see in the scripture this morning is, has such blessing and such, um, Encouragement to those who know Christ and who follow Him as Lord. Beginning at verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father. That everyone who looks on the son and believes in him. Should have eternal life. And I will raise him up. On the last day. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this passage of scripture, for this gospel that you have given us. We thank you for the word that teaches us, for the spirit that indwells us, for the Christ who is our Lord and God who is our Father. We thank you this morning that you are the sovereign of the universe. We thank you that you 
have planned and decreed from eternity past all that should come to pass in time. And this passage of scripture this morning gives us such great encouragement. It is, it has within it such blessing. And so I pray, Lord, that your saints will learn from it, cling to it, rely upon it, and live in it. For it is the word of the living God. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Amen. Last time we established the uh, the fact that God is completely sovereign in salvation and His plan for the universe, completely sovereign. And at the same time, man is completely responsible and accountable for his sin and rebellion against God. It is impossible for our finite minds to merge those two This incomprehensible interaction between divine sovereignty and human responsibility that that the human mind cannot grasp. It is that only those given to the Son by the Father, by the Father's will, comes to the Son. And yet, all who are thirsty may come. Anyone who wishes may take of the water of life freely. Though they seem impossible to harmonize, there is no conflict between the two truths in the infinite mind of God. God understands and molds them together perfectly. He alone understands them, for He alone decreed them. All we can do is believe that both truths are, in fact, true. That God is completely sovereign and that man is completely accountable to God for his sin. Now in verse 37, Jesus is explaining the unbelief of those who are lost in sin. He has confronted them. This is not just a confrontation to a few people in Capernaum. This is a confrontation to every single individual who has ever been born He says that those who come to him are gifts from the Father. They belonged to the Father, and the Father gave them to the Son. We substantiated that again in chapter 17, verse 1 and 2, 9 and 10, and verse 24, where Jesus says in that chapter, those three times, that this was a truth. The order here is very important. People do not come to the Son and then get gifted by the Father. Rather, they are gifted to the Son and then they come in belief to the Son. This is the divine transaction from heaven to the Son, showing the Father's love for the Son as well as the love He has for those He gives the Son. And why does He love them? Because they are the Son's gifts. He loves them in the Son and through the Son. God did not love us for ourselves, for there was nothing in us to love. 
Rather, he loves us in the Son. After revealing why people come to, Je- to, him, to the Son or why they don't come to Christ, Jesus adds a divine level of security for those who are chosen by God. The first level is the inexorable giving by the Father, which cannot be overthrown or derailed, by the way. Nothing will will keep it from happening. It is completely guaranteed. This is why missionaries can go to pagan peoples and places where the gospel has never gone, even cannibalize, uh, people who cannibalize uh, themselves and be assured that there will be those that will come to Christ. Because he has already said that there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every people group under heaven that will be there. So it's absolute. It's guaranteed to happen. The second is the absoluteness of the reception of those who come to Christ. They will all be received. They will all be welcomed. We call this generally under the title of eternal security. Eternal security. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that term. But I hope as we go through this, you will understand more clearly what eternal security really means from a biblical standpoint. Now that brings us to the second phrase in verse 37. He says, and this is the level of security. We would call eternal security. He says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Here we see the true nature of salvation as it is for those who come to Christ, which is equal to believing in Christ, according to verse 35. Coming is equal to believing. The giving and the coming to Christ in faith is the sovereign work of the Father. And the receiving and the keeping of those who come is the sovereign work of the Son. And this, all of this is orchestrated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice that all of the verbs that he uses to describe this are in the present tense. They, they come continually to the Son. It indicates that this is not a one-time event. And that's a misconception as well, I think, in much of Christianity. That people think because they came one time and prayed some kind of prayer or made some kind of effort that now they're saved and they can go out and live their lives as they please. And that is not what the scriptures teach. This is present tense. It means when they come initially, they continue to come. When they believe initially, they continue to believe. They do not defect 
It is not a coming for a season and then walking away. It's an ongoing faith in Him. A constant coming. A continual looking to Him in belief. The true believer is always looking and coming to Christ. That is the nature of saving faith. It was August of 1974 in the Oakland Alameda Coliseum when I first came to faith in Christ. I did not realize that He was bringing me to Himself. All I knew was that I was a lost sinner and I needed to be saved. And on that initial evening, I came and I believed. And I have continued to believe all these years since 1971. And I will continue to believe no matter what comes my way. That's the nature of saving faith. Many have proved otherwise in their lives. They claim to be Christians and yet they defect. They go back into the world. They live for themselves and and for the world. And the love of the Father is not in them. For they have not truly repented and come to Christ. Notice the ramifications of coming. First, it's certain that all will come. Whom the Father is giving to the Son. Second, anyone who does come will never be turned away. That is such a blessing to hear. There is no possible way that any of those assigned to Christ by the Father in eternity past who are given to Him in time will ever be lost. Think of that. They'll never be lost. One may ask, well then, how do I know if I'm one of those who has been chosen? And the answer to that is, have you come to Christ? Have you come to Him in repentance of your sins? Have you trusted in Him to save you from your sins? Have you come to Christ? Have you fallen in love with Him? Is He the treasure of your life? If you have, and those things are true of you, then you have been chosen. And your life has been changed. John reveals Christ's promise of this in four different, on four different occasions in this gospel. We see it in verse 40, we see it in verse 44, and we see it in verse 54. <clears throat> we also see it in John chapter 10. Verses 27 to 30. Turn to there. Turn to chapter 10 if you would. Just a few pages over in your Bibles. Jesus makes this statement, and I'm not going to expound on all of it, all of it this morning, but I wanted to read it because it dovetails so clearly with what he says here in chapter 6. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. Notice they are His sheep, my sheep, he says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So what is Jesus saying that so clearly matches what he's teaching in chapter 6? He's saying that they are his sheep, that the Father gave those sheep to him, that he has them tightly in his grasp, and the Father has them tightly in his grasp as well, and that they will never at any time perish. Now what's he talking about? People die every day. I'm wearing black this morning, and I was asked this morning, who died? (laughs) Well, a lot of people die every day. So Jesus says they'll never perish. What is he talking about? He's talking about spiritually. They'll never die spiritually. He gives them eternal life. If they were to die spiritually, then he lied. Eternal life never ends. They can never die spiritually. Now back to verse 37. Look at the context. The context is very important here. Notice that Jesus uses the little word all many times in this passage. All describes a group distinguished from another group. Let me say that again. All describes a group as distinguished from another group. It started in verse 37 as the ones who come to him. That's the group. All who come to him. The ones, and and it also is contrasted with those who do not come to him. In verse 36. So we have those who come and believe over against those who do not come and do not believe. And those are the only two options in all of humanity. Those who come and those who do not. There is no in-between. There's no partially being, no partially being saved. There's no, there's, there are no fractions in it. You either are or you aren't. So when you have this specific and contrasting groups in the context, in a context, the term all becomes significantly more important. That means, <clears throat> that means that all in verse 37 And 39, and everyone in verse 40, cannot be in a general category. They are specific to the other group whom Jesus says are unbelieving and will not come. Notice when he says, I will never cast out those who come. He promises that with the strongest possible terms in the Greek language. In Greek, it is a double negative. 
Now, those of you who are English teachers or you understand English know that a double negative in English really forms a positive. Am I correct in that? Double negative forms a positive. But in the Greek language, a double negative is the strongest way to maintain a negative. So Jesus is saying that those whom the Father gave him that come to him, he will never cast them out. That word never is the, has a double negative attached to it, which means there is no possible way that he will ever cast them out or turn them away. It can't be done. In English it would read, I will never, no, ever cast them out. The words cast out means to expel, to cause to leave or to cause to move out. It's an eviction with no possible way of return. It sometimes carries with it the connotation of forcing someone to move out or to go away with violence. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, last book in your Bible, very near the end, Revelation 20. We see it used this way, very negatively, and with violence. Watch, Watch what he says. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss, And a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now get this. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. He threw him into the pit. Same word for cast out. Drop down to verse 14. It's used twice in in these verses. Then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. Same word. They were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is a, that is a very violent passage. That Satan, by violence, is is chained and thrown into the abyss. That the people who are not found written in the Lamb's book of life are taken and cast or thrown into the lake of fire. Now, if you turn that around and take the positive meaning that Jesus has in chapter 6, it... it brings a great amount of assurance and peace to the heart of those who have trusted in Christ. Notice what he says. He says, I will never cast them out. I will never expel them. I'll never evict them from me. It forms this confident assertion from Jesus that he will not only receive all that come to him, But he will also keep them and never, ever turn them away. He keeps them by his own power. 
Now, the next promise in this divine series of promises is that Jesus' work cannot fail because he is acting in the will of the Father, which was established in eternity past. Notice verses 38 and 39. I have come down from heaven. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So, Jesus left his heavenly home with the Father. He condescended to earth in the form of a human. He was completely human, but also completely God in the flesh. And by the way, that is one of the earmarks of the true Christian faith. That Jesus Christ came in the flesh as God. John makes it very clear that anyone who does not believe that is a Christ denier. 1 John chapter 4 verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and and an antichrist. So those who say that Jesus was a great prophet, or he was a great man, he was a great miracle worker, but he wasn't God, John plainly says they are Christ deniers, antichrists, and deceivers. Be careful who you listen to. Understand what they're saying about Jesus Christ. It is all important. So Jesus plainly says in verse 38 that his purpose for coming to earth was to not continue to do his own will. This is all present tense. He's not here. He was not here to continue on doing what he was, his will was, but rather he was here To continue on doing what the Father's will was. In chapter 4, as we have already noted, he said to his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Chapter 5, he said, I can do nothing on my own because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. And in chapter 14, on the night before his death, he says to his disciples, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. That was the purpose of his doing the will of God, so that the world would know that he loved the Father. Then he clearly communicates what the Father's will is. We we are not left guessing. We are not left guessing as to what God's will is. He tells us what it is. Notice verse 39. He says, this is the will of him who sent me. There is a purpose... Result 
happening here. He gives the purpose of God sending him and the result of that being sent. Notice what he says. He uses the word that. But it is connected to the words, I should lose nothing. That should be translated in order that. Which tells not only the purpose of God sending the Son. But it also tells what the result will be. The result of God sending His Son... The purpose was that he would do the will of the Father. And the result is that he would lose nothing of all the Father gave him. So put it all together. If you have come to Christ in faith, believing. And Christ is your Lord. He he is the love of your life. Then you've been chosen by God. And you are guaranteed To belong to Christ forever and ever. He will never lose you. He will never let you go. You will never be able to turn away and walk away. Because that is not the nature of saving faith. The purpose was that every single individual that the Father gives the Son will be saved. And we are in that group. And nothing can change that. Now notice, the, the result is that he would raise it up. It refers to the collective whole of those who come. He's going to raise it up. All of those who come to him in time. All of those who belong to him, given by the Father, he is going to raise every single one of them up. And none will be lost. None will be left behind. That is the Father's will. That all he gives the Son will be saved. That's why, that's why the gospel is such a sure thing. That's why it can be preached with, with absolute Assurance that it will not come back void. Because God has already chosen. And the gospel goes out then and falls upon ears that God opens so that they can hear it. Eyes that are blind are opened so that they can see. Which we'll see in verse 40. So it's the guarantee of eternal life and salvation. The success... Hear me clearly. The success of his mission is not left to human will. If it were left to human will, no one would come. Because human human will is to sin. That's all it knows. Until God does some work. It is God's power... As John said in chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, They become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's God's work. 
All right, so here's the reason that this is in Scripture for us. It's there so that we would be comforted in the promise. And it's stated over and over, not just once, but many times throughout the Scripture, so that we would put our absolute confidence in the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ and He is never going to let us go. He is never going to let us down. He is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, we can bank on that. We can put our confidence in that. That's that's why he says, and John says in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. God does not want us guessing, wondering about whether or not we're believers. He wants us to know that we are. And how do you know? You know because you came to Christ in faith. You believed in Him. He changed your life. You fell in love with Him. God wants His chosen ones to have a full and complete assurance that they are His. The chain of salvation is linked back to God's choosing of those He gives to His Son. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I'll show you the chain. I wish I had more time to dive into some of these support passages. I don't have that kind of time. So we'll just look at it and make a few comments and move on. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Notice what he says. For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that, here's the purpose, that we might be the firstborn of many brothers. So, God is at work here. The foreknowing is not just God looking down through time and saying, oh, I see that that one's going to do that, and so now I'll do this. That is not the way God operates. The foreknowing is God decreeing and choosing and bringing that to pass in time. Verse 30, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that's the chain. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. It is the entire salvation process. And it's all given in the past tense. If you'll notice, it's all past tense. Why? Because in God's, in God's mind and from God's viewpoint, it's already happened. Remember, God is in all of time at all of time. He's in the past, present, and future. So God sees the whole picture as though it's already accomplished and completed. He sees that, He sees that all of those whom He predestined have been called and they've been justified and He sees them glorified but that hasn't happened to us yet in reality. But in God, God's viewpoint, it's already done. 
It's already completed. And that means that no one who is in this process will be lost. It's already complete. You might say we're as good for heaven as if we were already there. Now notice some other passages. Paul says it in another way just to give you uh, the same truth in different ways. He says in, in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am sure of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He began it. He completes it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. You will also appear. So has Christ been glorified? Yes, he has. That means it's absolutely sure that we will be glorified. Because we are in him. Jude, the brother of James, in the first verse of his letter says this. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's us. Those who believed. Now, these promises are only for those who look on the Son and believe. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Everyone who looks and believes. Did He not already say, everyone who comes and believes? So looking and coming are synonymous terms, but with different actions. The promises that he gives here are for only those who look to the Son or look on the Son and believe in him. Why does he change the wording from come in verse 35 to look in verse 40? Because the coming of verse 35 is equal to the looking of verse 40. The word looks to the Son, looks, has the idea of seeing with eyes that behold something with an attention that brings knowledge, that brings understanding. <clears throat> it's like it's like watching a sports game where you intently look at the players. You're watching what they do. You see the play and how it works and you understand what their goal is. It's an attentiveness. When people come to Jesus in faith, they look to Him. They, they understand that they are sinners, that He is the Savior, that they cannot save themselves. They have to depend upon Him to save them. <clears throat> the verb order is significant. Believing on Christ is the result of seeing Christ in that way. They see him through eyes that have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. 
Blind eyes are first opened. And now they see two things clearly. First, they see their sin before God. Which is critical because you you must see yourself as lost before you can be saved. People are walking around all around us. They don't know they're lost. Only one who needs to be saved or, or wants to be saved is the one who realizes that they're lost. Second, they see Christ as the one who can save, who can, who can answer their sin problem, who can take their sin problem away. So they believe, and they're forgiven, and they are granted eternal life. Arthur Pink says, he must first, he, he must first be revealed by the Spirit before he will be received by the Savior. In other words, Christ has to be revealed as the one who saves. And you need to understand, and we all did, those that know him, we understood that we, at one point in time, that we were sinners that were lost. For some, it's far more pointed than others. But we all, we all come there. Now, the last thing in verse 40 is the promised Resurrection. Jesus says, all that believe, all that come, all that see him and believe, he will raise them up on the last day. He, now notice what he says, I will raise them up. That's, that's serious because it says that Jesus is making a promise that he will raise up every single one whom the Father gives him that come to him and that see him in faith. He'll raise them up. How is he going to do that? The surety of the resurrection is placed solely on the power of Christ in his own resurrection. John chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. I lay it down that I might take it up again. Then he says, I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This I have received from my father. So the father said to the son, if I can put it in generic terms, son, lay down your life for all those whom I'm going to give you. And the son said, I will. And the father said, son, after you've laid down your life, you have the power to raise yourself from the dead. And he did. And that rising from the dead by the, by the power that was his own power, given to him by the father, through the will of the father, that resurrection sealed our resurrection. It makes our resurrection absolutely guaranteed. Notice what he says. I will raise him up on the last day. Every single one will be raised on the last day. If Jesus had the power to lay down his life and then take it up again, rise from death, then he has then we can say with great assurance that he has the power to raise us up as well. 
because he ever lives to make intercession for us and to do exactly as he said he would. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 42 to 44. He's talking about the resurrection in this passage because the Corinthians were questioning whether there would be a resurrection. Paul writes to them, there certainly will be a resurrection. If there's no resurrection, then we're lost. We have no hope. But Christ has promised to resurrect us. So here's what he says, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is imperishable. What does he mean sown? He means buried. That which goes back to the earth, the body which decays and and goes back to the earth. That which is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Do you realize that once we are raised and and given a new body, a new spiritual body, which is actually a, a body... That that body will never change and never grow old and never decay and never die. This body is going to die if given long enough. Unless unless we're here when the Lord returns and we're caught up to be with Him. If that doesn't happen, we're well, every one of us is going to die one day. And that's perishable. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. For if there is a natural body, then there is a spiritual one. That's what we're waiting on. That's what we're looking forward to. And you know the best thing about that body? Is that body will be incapable of sinning. It will be incapable of sin. Can you imagine living in a body where you never sin? Not even once. Spurgeon writes this, The Lord Jesus has taken all those who were given of the Father to Him into His custody. He is the surety He is responsible for them and He keeps them. In what way does He keep them? Seeing they are lost, He redeems them. Seeing they were far from Him, He fetches them back of His grace by the power of His Spirit. Seeing that they are still prone to wander, He restores their souls. Seeing they are imperfect, He sanctifies them. He continues the work of sanctification. And He will make them one day to be without spot and without wrinkle or any such thing. It is God who does this work. He does it from beginning to end. And that doesn't remove our obligation to persevere in the faith. But rather it secures the obligation. We can now live in the faith. Because of him who loved us. And gave himself for us and dwells within us by his spirit. You know. When we. When my children were little. 
And I would, we would be walking down the street or whatever, and we'd come to a, a cross where we had to cross the street. I would say to my children, hey, here, take my hand. And they would reach up and put their little hand in mine. Did I rely upon them to keep hold of me in crossing the dangerous street? No. I didn't rely upon them to hold on to me. I held on to them with a firm grip, a firm grasp, where they could not pull away from me. And that's the way it is with the Father. He has given us to His Son. His Son has received us. And grasp the hold of us. And He will keep holding on to us. And He will never let us go. Throughout all eternity. We are secure. In His life and in His love. Do you have that assurance this morning? Do you know that if you were to die today. That you would be welcomed into heaven. Are you sure of that? If not, you you need to flee to the cross. You need to flee to Christ and come to Him and see Him as the one who will save you from your sins. You need to repent of your sins. Turn from yourself and your sin to Christ. And God will save you. He's promised that if you come in believing... That He will forgive you and give you eternal life. I trust you'll do that if you haven't. If you have, then take this passage and make it a passage of assurance and confidence for your everyday life. That nothing can come between you and your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day. We ask that you would... Burn this, the truth of this passage into our hearts. It will be restated over and over in different ways throughout this chapter. But Lord, we're so thankful that you promised and you keep your promises. That anyone who comes, anyone who sees you in faith, with eyes of faith, and believes you would save and give eternal life. We, we're so thankful for that. We didn't deserve it. We still don't deserve it. But you have given it to us by your grace. And so I pray that you would save the lost. Revive your people in these truths. And give them the peace that passes understanding. The peace of Christ. Our Lord. Our Savior and our Sovereign King. In His name we pray. Amen.